Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Movie Change Up podcast. My name is Johnny Dupe, and I will be hosting uh, what is only our second battle of the year so far of 2022. So very exciting. But if you're not familiar with our show, you happen to stumble upon us. We are the Impossible Movie Remake Show. We uh, every week, well, not anymore. We can't do every week. It's really difficult to find time when this does not uh, pay you. So um, our competitors today will have a choice of, or will have three films. They will have to do reboots of these three movies. Um, and there are four rules that they must follow. They must use at least one rule per movie and one rule, the fourth rule, the little bonus one. This is something new that we've done, I think only in our last fight. Um, is something that must be used in all three movies. So there's one rule that will be involved in all three. The other three rules will be spread out between the rest. And I'm very interested um, today in honor of uh, the Batman uh, with Robert Pattinson, the great Batman film came out earlier this year. We put together a document of former movies starring former Batman. Um, so we have some, some of those in here. And I think we have some fun choices and all of our rules will be focused kind of around Batman and things like that. So before we kind of introduce what films we're doing today and what the rules are, I'd like my competitors to introduce themselves. First, I'll start with Tristia Al Ghul up top. Uh, please introduce yourself. What's your level of confidence today? Are you a little rusty? Um, and uh, are you excited to take out Joe, hopefully? Look, you know, I don't get rusty. You know, I'm, I'm always on my peak game. But, you know, it has been a while since you played, so I was definitely a bit to get into the groove of doing the pitches again and to figure out what I wanted to do for each one. And, you know, we're coming back after a big break, so for a couple of these, I figured why not swing for the fences a little bit? Why not go big for the for the return, return game of my competing here for the pitches? I'm curious to see what Joe does with some of these because some of these movies do lend themselves to, like, a lot of strange takes because <laughs> I feel like some of the premises can go in a lot of different directions. So I'm really curious to see where Joe goes with some of this stuff. But yeah, it's going to be a fun battle. I'm ready to fight. I feel pretty confident. And uh, I've been cr really working hard on these pitches for the last couple of days, uh, trying to get them to be the best they could be. So I'm excited to go into it and fight it out with Joe. All right. Yeah, I think uh, even though we've had this document ready since basically the Batman came out, <laughs> Um, which now is now streaming on HBO Max. I recommend everyone check that out. I think both the competitors today have uh, only worked on him within the last like 24 or 48 hours. So Joe over there, the Joker, I like that name as well. I like that you two went villain names and I went with the Duke Knight. Um, Joe, what, what's your confidence level going into, I think this is your first fight with only three films. What's your confidence level with the new format? Uh, my confidence level is sky high. Based on my tattoo, I don't know if you can see it, uh, I got Batman in my blood. So I'm ready to destroy Tristan and knock him down a peg or two. And um, his record's currently 0-1. I'm ready to make him 0-2 and put me 1-0. and uh, Give me a winning record, and uh, Tristan doesn't even know what's about to hit him. So, yeah, that's all I have yeah, to Joe, say. Joe's got his Batman tattoo. Tristan came prepared with his Superman shirt. And I came with my Superman shirt, my Nicolas Cage the true Superman. The only um, superhero. The only superhero. Um, but anyway, so we will get right into it. Our three movies today that we are going to reboot are Pacific Heights from 1990, Smoke and Aces from 2006, and The Great Reign of Fire from 2002. 
If you are familiar with those films, there's a couple of obscure ones there, but I think there's some fun choices. If you're not familiar with those films, I recommend Smoking Aces <laughs> out of the out of the three. That that one's a fun, dumb one, but um, we'll see what our competitors can do and maybe improve on them. So our rules today. So these are our four rules. One must be used for all three, and the others will be spread out. But our first rule is one must star three actors or actresses that have played villains in Batman films. One must feature a lead character who recently abandoned his Christian faith, or what you might call he performed a Christian bail. And then our third rule is one must be Oscar bait that takes place in Boston. I wonder who that rule is based around. And our fourth and final rule is one must be centered around Christmas in honor of the great Batman returns. So let's do a little game. We started this last time. This is something we used to do off camera, but it's just something simple that will let our competitors decide who um, goes first today or who gets to choose what movie is first. So in my hand, I'm holding an action figure of a Batman villain. Uh, I will go with, let's see, randomly, I'll say, Joe, you get your first guess, and then I'll go to Tristan, whoever guesses the villain in my hand will get the first pick. I'll say Two-Face. Wow, right off the bat, Joe got Two-Face. I was debating on him or the Riddler. It's also over my shoulder, but I figured the Riddler was too too front and center after being the star of the Batman. So, Joe, what movie are we starting with, and who is going first? Um, let's just start with the uh, top one on the board, Pacific Heights. And to knock the r- little bit of rust off that I have, I will go first. All right, perfect. So, uh, Pacific Heights came out in 1990. It was directed by John Schlesinger. Schlesinger, there you go. Um, and... The description is, unmarried yuppies Patty, played by Melanie Griffith, and Drake, played by Matthew Modine, move into an expensive dream home in a high-end neighborhood in San Francisco. As they renovate the house, they look for a tenant for the first floor of their house. Carter Hayes, played by Michael Keaton, seems like a great fit at first, but it transpires that he is a con artist who plans to swindle them out of their real estate. As Hayes tries to drive them out of their home, the couple must take drastic measures to fight back. And before Sounds I start, interesting. Before I start, I know we changed up kind of the fighting rules. What are we? I know. I think the last time we talked, uh, we decided I can go for two minutes. I mean, we'll do our pitches first, but then we'll go. I'll fight Tristan for two minutes. He fights me for two minutes, and then we just have a two-minute free-for-all. Is that what we decided on? I believe. Yeah, that that's pretty much what we did. I think what we did last time uh, was. Yeah, obviously, you both do your pitches, and then you're going to get uh, two minutes to kind of attack and defend your own pitch after hearing the other pitches. And then let's do this. Let's do two minutes to kind of take down the other pitch after you hear it, and then a minute to defend yourselves each, and then two-minute free-for-all. Okay. You can kind of go back and forth, address any point. So it'll be two-minute, one-minute, two minutes, um, attack, defend, and rebuttals. Okay. So, Joe, let's start with your pitch for your reboot of the classic uh, that no one ever heard of, Pacific Heights. All right. Uh, so, first of all, I will say my director is going to be Ethan Cohen. His brother just did his own solo project with The Tragedy of Macbeth, and so I'm giving Ethan Cohen uh, his own solo project. Uh, the role of Drake will be played by Paul Dano. Uh, the role of Patty is going to be played by Florence Pugh. 
Uh, the role of Carter Hayes is going to be played by John Turturro, a you know, usual Coen Brothers collaborator. And then uh, finally, the role of Mako is going to be played by Ken Watanabe. And to kind of give you a feeling or you know, a vibe of what this movie is going for, I was thinking something similar to The Favorite uh, that came out a couple years ago. Kind of a, a little bit of a historical but, uh, drama with some comedy added in. And I thought Ethan Cohen, who's worked on films like Oh Brother Where Art Thou and even movies like Barton Fink that have these kind of dramatic but still comedic elements would be a good fit for what I'm trying to go for here. So, in early 1900s Boston, a newly married couple, Drake and Patty, purchase a duplex in the historic Beacon Hill neighborhood. And that, and I'm also renaming my movie. It's going to be called Beacon Hill because I'm doing the role. Well, if you didn't notice already, I used the rule of Batman villain actors. And I'm also using the rule of this is Oscar bait set in Boston. So uh, this is the two rules I'm using for this movie. And uh, there is no Pacific Heights neighborhood in Boston. So I decided to... Uh, change the title of the movie to Beacon Hill where this movie takes place. Uh, and so while searching for someone to rent the bottom level, there is a knock at the door and it is a New York City businessman named Carter Hayes, played by John Turturro. He says he is looking for a place to rent and notice their vacant duplex. He offers to pay $30 a month, which is more than what they're asking for. They're overjoyed to sign him. Uh, at first, things are great, but they notice Carter is acting odd. There are sounds of hammering coming from his duplex in the middle of the night. When they're gone, they notice stuff in their side has moved around. They confront Carter, but he denies everything and turns it around on them, and they apologize for confronting him. At one point, their neighbor Mako comes over and asks if they have a roach problem too because he's been getting a lot of roaches. Uh, just then, a roach scurries across the floor. Uh, throughout the movie, they're noticing more and more problems with their duplex, uh, and they, they've, they're convinced that Carter is the one doing it. And then... So they ultimately decide to go to the police and the police, you know, investigate the problem, but they can't really do anything, obviously, because I've set the movie in the early 1900s. Uh, there's a lot less tracking and paperwork and a lot of, you know, you can't really look people up anymore. So they try to do, this couple tries to do as much as their own investigating as they can. Slowly throughout the movie, they realize that this guy is not who he says to be. He's not some, you know, up on the rise businessman. He's a you know, lowly con artist and who has scammed people over and over and over again. And it's taken people, like no one's ever realized that this guy keeps switching identities and doing all that. And ultimately they finally break into his side of the townhouse after he switched the locks. They've had enough. They're trying to hunt him down, track him down, but he keeps eluding them. And they realize he has found his next identity he's going to steal, and it's Drake's, the kind of son of, uh, of a businessman who's now starting his own real estate empire, starting with this townhouse. And ultimately, it leads to a confrontation between uh, Paul Dano, who in this movie plays his kind of typical role of this meek, shy guy, which allows him to be kind of overpowered and intimidated by John Turturro's character, and it's kind of his character learning to stand up for himself learning to kind of have his own inner power and he ultimately stands up and there's a fight and uh ultimately like paul dano because he's been working with the cops the cops come in they see dano and Turturro fighting and uh Turturro's ultimately like arrested for everything he's done and then 
end of the movie, turns out Turo kind of has conned his way, has conned his talk to the cops. The cops are now starting to turn on believe him because he's such a good communicator, such a good talker. And the movie ends with his release and he basically um, is still back living at the duplex and they can't kick him out uh, because he has all like the paperwork of he rents there. And that's kind of the end of my movie. Johnny, I believe you're muted. Yeah. I am muted. Good point. I didn't want to interrupt Joe. But, yeah, the uh, the Watanabes, I believe, are characters in the original movie. So I yeah. like the Ken Watanabe casting. I, I, I figure that was the inspiration for that. It was. Um, all right, I'm interested. I was uh, always hoping for a prequel to the movie Duplex starring Ben Stiller and Drew Barrymore. <laughs> and uh, not that yours gave me that vibe, but you said Duplex, so that is what it reminded me of. Tristan, I am interested to see what you did it. Will your pitch be sound a little similar to the original like Joe's, or did you go a whole different direction? I'm interested to see. All right, so mine do uh, sound similar to Joe's. I also had an Oscar bait set in Boston for mine, uh, and... I'm also having mine set over Christmas week, so if you can put two and two together, one of those two is going to be my repeated rule. I'm sure you can probably guess which one. <laughs> uh, the director for mine is going to be Noah Baumbach. Uh, he has Marriage Story was a huge Oscar hit. He's always kind of a critical darling, and he rose up in this kind of like indie mumblecore kind of talking dramas that I think would fit really well in this premise here. And my writers here are Noah Baumbach and Greta Gerwig, who are a real life couple, work together all the time, and I also have Mark Duplass on the script because he's going to be involved in this as well. Give it that kind of like zany indie kind of feel to it too. Uh, my lead, Patty, is played by Greta Gerwig herself. She stars in a lot of everyone's movies and in a lot of Noah Baumbach's movies. They got to start together in Francis Ha. So it'll be fun to see her back with him again. And Drake is played by Adam Driver from Marriage Story. So they worked together before and he's in a role here of the husband of Patty. And Carter, who's the uh, person that moves in with them is played by Mark Duplass. So he's going to have that kind of like weirdness that Mark Duplass brings to a role where he's kind of charismatic, but also kind of soft-spoken, a little bit off-putting, and you're not quite sure what to make of the guy. I feel like he fits into that kind of role of the outsider coming in pretty well. And I also have Patty's overprotective mother, who is kind of an outsider force that then comes and is there for Christmas week and is kind of the instigator of this plot, where she starts to say maybe things aren't quite right. And She's played by Ann Dowd, who I think really needs to get an Oscar nomination after being robbed from Mass. So I'd love to see her get in this role where she can actually hopefully get that Oscar love. So, uh, yeah, like I said, mine is set in Boston and over Christmas weeks. So you get to see Boston like at Christmas time, but it's set almost entirely within their apartment. So it's like one of those kind of like the humans or like Mass where it's all set pretty much in one location. You're kind of moving out throughout the rooms of its apartment, but you're not really leaving the walls of the apartment. Uh, so Patty, who's played by Greta Gerwig, she's a struggling children's author who had this kind of hit children's book when she was an early writer, but now she hasn't been able to kind of recapture that glory again. But she's trying to get through writer's block with her husband, uh, Adam Drivers Drake, who is a literature professor, a literature professor, and he gets his dream job at Boston College. So they moved to Boston and now ever since they've moved she's had this writer's block and she's kind of not been able to get her next story started so they haven't been able to get their finances together because she's not writing so they go and 
reach out to and find some interviews and finally find this guy Carter who is this soft-spoken but charming kind of guy who immediately impresses Drake because he knows you know his classical literature and all that kind of stuff so Drake likes him but Matt Patty is kind of off-put by him and doesn't really know what to make of him he says oh I can pay with cash you know I don't need to worry about any of that kind of stuff and she kind of wonders what he does for a living all those kind of things but you have pretty much a movie from her point her point of view so there's gaslighting elements to it where you know Carter's saying oh you're overreacting you know I'm just kind of trying to be nice why are you, why are you being so aggressive towards me and Drake is saying like oh you know he's maybe he's a little weird sure but we're helping him out you know he's a nice guy this and that and you know her mother says oh well that's what you get for going out to Boston with this guy you know you shouldn't have trusted him this and that so you see her kind of starting to slowly uh, feel that pressure and I think Noah Baumbach could build that up pretty well with in just the conversations of these characters and I think when you have these Oscar bait moment, Oscar bait movies, especially stuff that comes from Noah Baumbach, he has like that talked about scene, you know, oh, you got to watch Marriage Story because of that scene. And like when they show him at film festivals, there's like, oh, that scene that's so crazy. And I think the scene that would be so crazy here is that when uh, the mom and, and Dowd comes and she's very immediately doesn't like Carter, immediately not on his side. And he's getting desperate. He wants her to be on his side and he tries to seduce her. So you get this kind of weird scene where Mark, Mark Duplass tries to seduce Anne Dowd and it's all like the height of the tension and everyone kind of explodes from there. I think that would be a really fun, like talked about scene. People would be like, oh, it can, there were walkouts, you know, people were booing. They were like pretty shocked, but ultimately it was like this kind of weird finale scene to this movie. And I like, you know, the original has this, oh, he's a, even Joe went into it, like he's a, a con artist and I want to, ending here where you don't really know why he did it you know like they kind of confront him as he's he's fleeing and they're like why'd you do it and he just kind of shrugs and says like you know felt like fun and i think that's kind of a scarier ending where he he doesn't he's not a car artist he doesn't have any goals he just like thought it would be a fun thing to do and i think that would be a, a chilling ending and i think uh noah Baumbach could get the most out of the tension there and who knows liver and out her oscar maybe even mark duplass his oscar because he has that kind of narrative of like the indie guy who never really got the awards love yet. So I think it could be fun to see both of them do that together. And that's my pitch. So you just have this kind of tense drama where she's kind of losing it and they're not kind of trusting her and you never quite get a full answer of who he is and why he's doing it. But you have all these pieces you can put together and figure it out. And it's mostly focused on the characters and the tension in the script and I think that's what a lot of these Oscar bait movies are. It's very much about the performances and the tension in that. So that's my pitch for Pacific. Because as in awesome, I'm also set over Christmas week. <laughs> okay. All right. Um, all right. So we're going to do our two minutes kind of, we'll say two minutes to kind of take down the other pitch. Tell me why yours is better. Let me get my stopwatch ready. Joe, you pitched first, so I'm going to have you go first. I'll start the time. Do you have any questions? Um, for you, I don't really, but just to get into it, Tristan, my question for you is going to be, I need to know more of like, I, you said it set during Christmas week, but I need to know why that affects the story a little more. Mm -hmm. um, Joe, I would say yours... I, I just need you to tell me why your film is different 
than the original because the pitch sounded very similar plot-wise. I know that the kind of tone seems different to me, but I need to know, like, what's the point of this reboot if it's basically just different actors playing out the same exact story? That's kind of the vibe I got from it. So I'd say those are two kind of areas I need both of you to kind of uh, address when you're fighting. But other than that, I mean, I kind of get the Oscar bait stuff. I totally get. Um, I like the cast of both movies, so I'm pretty split down the middle. So I need some uh, good points brought up. So, Joe, I, as soon as you start, I will hit the timer. Uh, for mine, uh, as far as what separates it and also kind of to lean into more of the Oscar Beatty type thing of having any kind of political message or anything. One of the things that I didn't quite focus on in my original pitch, but I intended more in my movie was kind of the idea of classism. It's not like a full on like parasite or any of those type of movies things. But one of the things I did want to hit on is like Paul Dano's character and Florence Pugh's character are like the kind of upper class kind of, higher crust people and John Turturro's character started off as like this poor guy and it's like he got to this duplex or Paul Dano and Florence Pugh like got to this duplex essentially because they got it from their parents money they their parents gave them money and they're like okay we're gonna start our own real estate business in like 1900s Boston with this money and John Turturro's more he got to this duplex because he had to work for it sure maybe it wasn't uh in kind of any kind of legal means but it was still him counting people people to get to the point where he could uh, pay for this duplex and it even starts with he's kind of proud of himself because he's able to pay more than what they're offering when he offers the $30 a month and so and it's kind of a little bit when the movie ends and he's still in his side of the duplex there's like a little bit of you that's kind of happy for him but you still recognize that this guy's kind of a monster kind of a sleazy guy but you understand what he's going for my think that i wanted to hammer on tristan and you brought it up was 30 seconds i didn't really feel anything christmas related other than that the mom was in town because it was christmas i didn't really get any other vibe of his movie of like why is this set during christmas and also i don't know if mark duplass really makes this oscar bait i understand tristan's narrative of like this indie guy rising but i don't know if mark duplass is like the indie guy that the oscar voters would latch on to and so that's kind of uh my last point i had all right Perfect. Yeah, you stopped with basically two seconds left on that. Um, all right, I like those that addressing it. Um, Tristan, uh, I will start the timer whenever you're ready. All right, yeah, I want to focus on the Christmas stuff because I kind of skipped that whole section here of the pitch because the movie takes place over Christmas week and it's kind of marked down by them building up to this Christmas party and you have kind of have Christmas as like this ticking time bomb where like each day they get closer and closer to Christmas. You feel like Carter's getting closer and closer to tearing them kind of a part you know at the beginning where he's just kind of like gathering these personal information about these people from these conversations he's getting more and more information out of them and kind of like weaving it into the other conversation you're not quite sure oh is he just overly sharing is or is he kind of more sinister and then as you get closer and closer to christmas you feel the tension ramping up and not just between carter and everybody else but between patty and 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 duke because uh Petty and Drake because their their relationship is kind of getting more and more strained as they get closer to this Christmas party and then they know the mother who is very much like a wearing on the mental health of, of Patty is, is also in town for it so that's adding on to it as well so you have kind of like this reverse where people sometimes feel like that build up the Christmas is so exciting and so One fun minute. I want it to feel kind of nerve-wracking and terrifying and you're feeling like as they get closer and closer to the day that like anything is going to fall fall apart and happen and then their their final confrontation like that moment where carter 
he has no is so desperate that he tries to seduce the grieving mother and like that kind of explodes the, the whole dynamic of the, of the of the house that takes place at the christmas party like on christmas at midnight essentially so it's like you have this kind of building up of the tension revolving around christmas and for me joe it just feels like kind of the same thing over again when i want to see the coen brothers do something interesting i want to see them take something that uh that hasn't been done before or something that you know has this kind of like big epic kind of roots i don't know i want to see them do something that's more open to be creative and do their own thing with it because if i understand like they're not a unit anymore but i want to see I'm them sorry. get more into like the weird and the zany side of the coen brothers and this feels like it would just be him taking something that's already done and putting a little bit of Cohen in there, but not really. And I want to see some of the zany, fun Cohen stuff. That's my love of Cohen. So, you know, right. I'll, I'm done. <laughs> All right. So, Joe, you get a minute to uninterrupted minute to just kind of say whatever, whether it's taking his down or saying more about yours. I will start that whenever you start talking. Um, as far as, you know, seeing the Coen brothers do something original, we saw Joel Coen go and his last movie wasn't exactly original. It was The Tragedy of Macbeth. It's a story that's been told 100,000 times. So what's uh, Ethan Coen going to do in a movie that's been told once and putting the Coen brothers style and putting, the, you know, his flair on it? So I don't know if necessarily because this movie's been done before, it necessarily means that he wouldn't do it or couldn't make it great. I mean, the first movie is one the three of us I don't think really heard of until this pitch came out, so there's a lot of room for him to play and a lot of room for him to do 30 seconds uh, whatever left. he wants to. And I think as far as, to one defense of mine, as far as being Oscar bait, I think the one thing that can make the John Turturro's Oscar moment, the moment they play when he's nominated for Best Supporting Actor, is him in the police station talking to the police getting them on his side and allowing him to be released Ten because seconds. they believe him to be innocent. And it's kind of the moment you go from rooting against Totoro to maybe you're rooting for him a little bit. And that's all, all I have to say. All right. Tristan, uninterrupted minute before we get into our two-minute battle. Yeah, you can say that Macbeth was something that was done before, but he did it in a way with very unique style and told it in this big kind of stylistic way. And I don't get that from yours. Yours just feels like kind of this average drama that's kind of a bot class but not really like it's it's sort of there but not really and like it reminds me almost of Buster Scruggs where it's like the fin that was the finale of the Coen Brothers where it's like they took something and kind of had this Coen touch to it but it wasn't really like anything that grabbed me I felt like oh I'll, you know I'll get to that one eventually and there's a handful of Coen Brothers movies like that where it's like oh you know I'll get to that one eventually seconds. but I'm not going to and I think Joyce feels like one of those that you get to it eventually but you probably would never going you probably never would and Mine feels like an actual genuine Oscar bait movie that could win Best Picture. That sounds like a really fun drama. It has great cast. Anne Dowd, Mark Duplass, Adam Driver, Greta Gerwig. I love that cast. All of them together sound like a great tense family drama. So I think mine just sounds like a much better movie than Joe's does. All right. And Joe sucks. <laughs> Tristan always got to get his time. You know, he, he gets his money's worth with, with the time. So, all right. I think I know most of the stuff I need to know, but I, I've been making up my fight basically based on points that you guys have made on this. I'm still pretty split. So I'm going to give you a couple minutes to kind of go back and forth and hopefully one of you really wins me over here. So I'll start whenever I guess either of you start. All right. So all I have to say, as far as Oscar bait, you have uh, Ethan Cohen, Paul Dano, Florence Pugh, John Turturro, and then even throw Ken Watanabe on top of that. I feel like that's pure Oscar bait. I feel like 
uh, Tristan's knocking down how much, like, oh, this is just the average Coen Brothers movie. I feel like a Co- an average Coen Brothers movie is still far superior than most movies. And I still don't feel that it's an average Coen Brothers movie. I feel like this movie is all about characters and writing and dialogue. And I feel like that's something that's hard to necessarily convey in a pitch that Cohen, that Ethan Cohen could knock out of the park and crush and make this a movie that you have to see because you have to see all these characters interacting with each other. You want to talk about a movie that's all about characters and interacting and dialogue? That's my whole movie. It's them in the house talking to each other with a great script from great writers and great actors doing it. Like, mine talks, we want to talk about character and drama and something that sounds really good. That, That's what mine sounds like. And you say, oh, the Coens, they get awards all the time. Like, Macbeth didn't get a ton of Oscar love. Like, it got a handful Maybe of Maybe Ethan memories. Cohen was the reason why and not Joel Cohen. <laughs> well, sure, but then you can't say he's Oscar bait when you're just picking him out of a hat. Like, he's not, he's not... The Coens aren't really like Oscar Beatty directors, you know. They once in a while they get nominations, but it's not like oh, every time a Coen movie comes out, it's going to get Oscar wins all the time. Like you go on the Ryan DeBee, I bet at least half of them you haven't even seen. Like Thank You for Smoking was on Oscar. Like some of these movies are not Oscar nominated movies, and I don't think, I don't think, uh, like Joe Joe tried to defend his and say, oh, it doesn't sound like just a generic Coen Brothers movie, and to seconds. me it does. It sounds like he took, oh yeah, Joe. John Turturro, he works with him. Let's throw him in there. Let's throw a couple of things in there that are Cohen-esque. And I don't think it really sounds like a standout Cohen Brothers movie. And mine sounds like a great evolution of Noah Baumbach's style and like taking what he did in Marriage Story and escalating it to this bigger kind of weirder drama and adding in that Mark Duplass strangeness. I think would be a lot of fun to watch. So like having a Greta, like a Greta Gerwig, Noah Baumbach, like drama talkity mixed in with like a Mark Duplass weirdness and then you have an endowed giving an Oscar worthy performance. I think that would be a great one. That's something to be on the Criterion Collection. That's like an all time kind of move that I think people will be talking about and liking. All right. Well, first, thank you for smoking was Jason Reitman. And two, I think John Turturro is perfect for my movie. If you have the weird neighbor guy who slowly becomes the creepy, intimidating guy that you're kind of terrified of. And then you also have Paul Dano as kind of the meek guy that he normally plays in part of the arc of his movie is him growing into his his own and kind of fighting back against Turturro. So it wasn't just All random right, actors. So, yeah, you guys um, went past the two minutes, but I was going to say I wanted to hear one last point from Joe, and he kind of made, made his point there. This one's tough. I've went back and forth. Uh, I would definitely see both of these uh, films, and I like both takes on them. I think after hearing more about Joe's, it does sound more different than the original than I, than I maybe originally thought. Tristan's I like because I think the character development would really work for Tristan's story, and I like that kind of explosion at the end. I'm still not exactly sure what happens with like the seduction of Anne Dowd. Uh, you kind of just said that starts happening and then people would walk out, so I'm guessing that leads to a really weird steamy hot sex scene between the mom and him and people are walking out of the theater so i i don't know if that would be like a super satisfying finale to this like be like marriage story then at the end like some old boyers like banging adam driver and <laughs> i mean i can tell you the ending if you want <laughs> no that's okay um i didn't I, I i was back and forth here but i think joe won on a couple points Tristan made some good points, but I think Tristan hurt himself by trying to say that the Coens aren't Oscar baity when the only thing Noah Baumbach's really ever done that got Oscar attention was Marriage Story. Uh, he He's not some big Oscar baity guy just because he makes indie films that should be maybe Oscar baity movies, but like no one 
was you know up there nominating Francis Ha for Best Picture and things like that. I think the Coens are more Oscar bait, and I think that what it came down to in the end is who used that rule better because I like both pitches. And I like Joe's idea of, I think John Turturro is perfect casting for the kind of poor man that wants to con these dumb, like young, rich couple into living with them. I think Turturro with the Cohen direction would really crush that role. Um, at first, I wasn't sure if Joe's was a little too like, he went more zany vibes, but I think the more serious he kind of made it sound and kind of the not quite parasite, but the classism issues in that. I think that's a more compelling story for me personally than just, you know, Mark Duplass just doing this because he's having uh, fun. I think I forget if that was your pitch or his pitch, actually, at this point. But I like Mark Duplass, but I've seen Creep, and I, I'm more sold on the John Turturro role than Mark Duplass doing this role. I think it would be kind of similar to, to that film. So in the end, I'm giving the very close, probably like 52 to 48 win for Joe, but we're starting off really close. I just think Joe made it, made a couple good points, and I think, uh, yeah, that could have gone either way. But I, I Joe's say, a little more Oscar-y. I will say, uh, I only had the cast and the director. I made up the most of pretty much all of the pitch uh, on the spot, you can tell. and also uh, up until about an hour ago, I had Zach Galifianakis in the John Turturro role because I couldn't figure find anyone that I liked until I was scrolling through the cast of the Batman and I saw John Turturro and he was perfect. So I was going to say, has John, has Zach Galifianakis played a Batman villain? I forgot he voiced the Joker. Yeah. In the he was Lego the Batman Joker movies. in the Lego Batman movie. Yeah. So I, I, I think it was very apparent that you basically just did the same pitch as the original kind of went plot details, even the cockroaches, but the further you got away from your pitch and you started actually selling me on your, movie that definitely helps so you only won that based on your fight i don't think you're going to have the same luck if you have that same strategy going forward though because tristan was very close on that i think with a couple tweaks he could have he could have won this one because you you barely squeaked by there so tristan having lost that one what movie are you feeling confident in to stay alive uh i'm gonna go with reign of fire uh let's make sure you guys had a couple drinks in you and then we'll get going uh Perfect. All right. I might need to go grab a drink if we're getting in a rain of fire. But I will say, I'll start with the description of Rain of Fire. It came out in 2002. It was directed by Rob Bowman. In present-day London, 12-year-old Quinn watches as his mother wakes an enormous fire-breathing beast from its centuries-long slumber. 20 years later, much of the world has been scarred by the beast and its offspring. As a fire chief, Quinn, played by Christian Bale, is responsible for warding off the beast and keeping a community alive as they eke out a meager existence. Sorry. Eke out a meager existence. Into the into their midst comes the, a hotshot American, Van Zan, played by Matthew McConaughey. His name is Van Zan. Love it. Who says he has a way to kill the beasts? All right. So yeah, Reign of Fire is a real movie that happened, and if you don't believe me. Go check it out. It's a post-apocalyptic movie about dragons waking up and taking over the world. And Matthew McConaughey is Van Zan. Uh, Tristan, did you want to go first, or is, or is Joe going to go? Yeah, I, I'll go first on this one. Let's uh, let's do this one first. Uh, All right, perfect. You can start whenever, and I'm going to grab a drink, but I'm still listening. <laughs> 
So my two rules here are uh, set uh, around Christmas. It, it involves Christmas as a, as a theme. And uh, my main character has abandoned his Christian faith recently. Uh, my director, recently freed from the Fast and Furious, is Justin Lin. He stepped away over some, uh, some incidences with the Vin Diesel I have heard today. So he's now able to go do his dream job, which is uh, directing my random fire movie. Uh, my main character, Chris, uh, in the opening scene, he's just 18. He's in training to become a priest. Uh, he's, but he's heading home to Texas to tell his very religious family that he's actually not going to enter the priesthood after all. And he, in fact, no longer believes at all. So he's kind of uh, nervous heading back home for Christmas to tell his family that, uh, Merry Christmas, I don't believe in God at all. I'm not going to be a priest anymore. Uh, and right, of course, when he breaks the news, they kind of start to fight. And right in the middle of the argument, the earth begins to shake and the power begins to flicker and they hear all these loud noises and they rush outside and they look out over this kind of nighttime Texas landscape and they see these massive flying beasts out in the distance and they're breathing out this ice cold breath all over this, all over the desert like snow and there's like these giant flying creatures. They're not quite sure what to make out of them and Christopher tries to run but he stopped in his tracks when a huge creature, even bigger than the other flying creatures, sweeps down and kind of like hangs over them and he's looking down at them. Christopher looks up at him and he's got like these four legs and these giant horns and he looks up and the creature looks down and his nose glows bright red and he goes, oh my God, blinding him. And this creature blows out fire, spews fire all over the house, engulfs the house, kills Chris's mother and his whole family. Chris flees and we cut to 20 years later. Now, the once uh, desert town is now kind of the snowy tundra, and Chris, played by Dan Stevens, is a warrior, and he kind of fights off these monstrous reindeers on the outskirts of civilization uh, who attack humans, to, and the humans are kind of trying to survive in this tundra, and these, these ice-breathing reindeers are attacking Chris, and he has to defend civilization is kind of wrecked with guilt because he kind of feels like he he lost his family and lost his faith and now he's stuck in this kind of post-apocalypse reindeer world you know and he's decided to become this professional badass driven by revenge uh, he's he's set on killing the red-nosed monster who leads these reindeers and he's gonna kill him and the problem though is that <clears throat> the problem is that he can't go directly to their leader he has to take down all of their henchmen too. Dasher, Dancer, Prancer, Vixen, Comet, Cupid, Donner, Blitzen. He has this whole army of reindeer he has to take down. So we get these kind of badass action scenes where uh, like the reindeer attack and Chris is barely holding them off the townspeople and saving them. And Chris is like, man, how am I gonna do this? Like, it took us all this work and all we took down was Blitzen, you know? We got this whole team of reindeer left. What are we gonna do? But, uh, he hears about this old man who lives out in the in the tundra that says he can control the beasts. And Chris is kind of out of hope. He says, okay, I have this one last leap of faith. What am I going to do? I'm going to go find this guy. So he takes this long ride out into the cold. You know, he's starting to hallucinate. He's starting to lose it, freeze to death. He wonders, oh man, this must be the end. But he's saved by a old kind of large man in a long gray beard with some worn red coat and he's trying to make him out and he looks up and 
you see this character, he says, hi, my name is Kringle. And you see he's played by Nicholas fucking Cage. That's right, we got Nick Cage in here as Chris Kringle. And he says, look, uh, I, I am the man who was once in control of these beasts. We lived up in the north, and we were in hiding. We're in this land called the North Pole, where mythological creatures, we all kind of still exist up there. And I kind of helped keep them at bay with these magical reindeers. And I have this ancient power not to defeat the beasts or to kill them, but to tame them. And he's worked along with a city of elves up in the north to help keep the monsters in check. And he only takes them out once a year to kind of let off their magical steam and fly around the world in one night. And that's his kind of one night to let off the magic of these reindeer. And other than that, he's training them, keeping them in check in the north. Uh, however, things changed when a new creature was born with a very shiny nose and uh, the inability to fly or spit icy breath. And, you know, he was kind of an outcast. All the other creatures they used to laugh and call him names. You know, they never let him play any of the creature games. And, and especially one, one especially foggy night, you know, uh, it was Christmas 20 years ago. And he says, he, he says, hey, Rudolph, I want you to lead my sleigh tonight. And he, Rudolph goes out and they're desperate. So he has to lead, he leads them out in this charge 20 years ago. And then Rudolph turns against them. He kind of overthrows Kringle and reveals his full power that he's actually this fire breathing monster and uh so the reindeer that are left are the ones that kind of joined rudolph's side and turned against santa and killed all of the elves and kind of like took over the world and now kringle and chris have to work together to kind of round up these surviving reindeer and team them up against rudolph so you get kind of big fun action scenes you get kind of reindeer versus reindeer action you know you get all kinds of that stuff and then the final battle is them kind of teaming up, uh, gathering this kind of army of townspeople to guide these these reindeer against the Rudolph, who's the big evil leader. And uh, in the end, kind of Chris is ready to, to, to surrender himself and sacrifice himself in the final battle. And Kringle saves him and says, no, no. The only way to do this is through peace and kind of sacrifice himself instead. So... Our final scene then is uh, Chris now living in the north and he himself has taken on this kind of role left behind by Kringle where he's kind of this tamer in the north who's keeping this mythical world at bay away, away from the humanity of the, rest of, the, of the rest of the world. So you have that kind of switch where in the beginning he's a priest and he's, then he's kind of lost that faith entirely and now he's switched to being this totally different role as like a, a keeper of the mythological world in the north. And you tell it all through this crazy... Magical Reindeer story with Nick Cage is Kringle. So that's my pitch. If you're going to make Reign of Fire, make it the crazy movie you find at 2 o'clock in the morning and you say, what the fuck am I watching? <laughs> you know, I think that fits with the original movie. <laughs> and there's my pitch. All right. I'm deciding what the better title for Tristan's movie would be. It's either you'd lose the G in Rain and it's Rain like Reindeer of Fire or it's Rain like the Reign of Fire film but it's reindeer games with the reindeer. So I, I like it. It was uh, when you said the bright red nose, I'm like, he's not talking about Rudolph. And then it continued and you definitely were. <laughs> so 
that's a direction that you can go. Um, Joe, <laughs> I'm interested to see how many reindeer are in your film. Uh, zero. Um, so, uh, the director of my big movie, mistake, big mistake, is uh, David Lowry, <laughs> who just did The Green Knight. Uh, the role of Quinn in my movie is going to be played by Jude Law. Uh, the role of Van Zan in my movie is going to be played by Michael Shannon, who played Zod, the villain, in uh, Batman v Superman, Dawn of Justice. Uh, the role of Creedy is going to be played by Barry Cogan, who played the Joker in the Batman. And the role of Alex Jensen is going to be played by Anne Hathaway, who was Catwoman in The Dark Knight Rises. So, uh, and the rule, the other rule, obviously I use the uh, three... Uh, villains in Batman movies and then the other one is uh, just like Tristan a character who lost their Christian faith so my movie Michael Shannon's character Denton Van Zandt is a former American soldier from Kentucky in uh, current present day he lays in bed asleep with a bible on the nightstand covered in a small layer of dust he's having PTSD flashbacks flash, flashbacks of his entire platoon raided in the night they were bunkered down deep in a cave in the Middle East when his entire platoon was attacked by these small flying demons shooting fire at the soldiers. Uh, we pull back to Denton's sleep in bed. He rolls over and there are burns all along the side of his face and body. Uh, he goes to confession the next morner, morning and is talking with the priest, saying he feels like a sinner even though he hasn't sinned. He feels that he doesn't believe his God would allow his men, good men, to be attacked by demons like that. He doesn't know if his God is real anymore. All across the globe, news reports keep popping up of various sightings, underground and in caves. Everything from demons, dinosaurs, El Chupacabra, and the Loch Ness Monster. Uh, cut to England. Quinn Abercrombie, a pastor, is preparing for a funeral. We see various pictures and medals in his office. He is a former member of the British military. He and his, his assistant, Pastor Creedy, uh, are conducting a funeral over the grave when a 10-foot-long dragon bursts out of the hole. The dragon shoots a burst of flame over the funeral attendees. Kept to five years later, Earth's population is decimated. It's revealed that with global warming, many dragon eggs dating before the first ice age that were in hibernation have warmed to the point of incubation and hatching. The various militaries have tried fighting off the dragons, but with so much of the leadership gone, the only people with any success have been these various militias. Uh, with America deemed a lost cause, Denton Van Zant takes his militia to the largest amount of dragons to kill them at the source, England. On the sailboat ride there, because flying is obviously deemed too dangerous, they run into a lone dragon. There we learn Denton has killed many, uh, and he has learned it's best to kill them in the twilight hours, which is kind of more of a twist in the original movie, but in my movie I'm just making it uh, kind of something from the very beginning. He and his crew, including Alex Jensen, kill it during sunset. Upon arrival in England, he soon meets up with uh, Quinn and Creedy, and uh, kind of through they kind of talk to each other, learn about each other, learn how each other have been fighting dragons. Uh, Quinn and Creedy learn that uh, Van Zant used to be Van Zan used to be a man of faith, but he's kind of lost his faith because of what happens. Ultimately, uh, Van Zant accepts that these dragons aren't demons. And that Quinn teaches him, like, that the Bible isn't meant to be exact. It's not supposed to be a fully 100% true story because it was written by man and man is flawed. And it's just important to have faith no matter what that faith is. And during their battle against the dragons protecting London, Quinn and Van Sant become good friends. And they also learn 
uh, what they previously thought was wrong. These aren't all old eggs. Some of them are, but there is an old mother dragon still laying eggs underground. These two guys and their two militias work together to coax the mother dragon out of the ground under uh, London, out into the open, and the movie ends with uh, Van Zandt sacrificing himself during the battle against the mother dragon. So his and Quinn's militias can live, and before he sacrifices himself, Quinn asks Van Zandt why he's doing it, and what if they don't win, and Van Zandt says they have, he has faith, and that's kind of the end of the movie. So you just kind of have this hopeful thing that ultimately uh, they're going to win. They're going to take out all the dragons, and uh, humanity will live on and rise again. All right, so no reindeers. Um, so we have here the Killer Rudolph movie versus the Young Pope fighting dragons, and I'm interested to see the results of these fights. Uh, Tristan, I don't know if I have a question about your movie <laughs> that I can narrow down. <laughs> um, maybe just describe to me the way the reindeer look because I was looking at pictures of monster reindeer and there are some interesting ones. So I'm interested to see what yours kind of look like. I need the feel of them. How big are they? Uh, how deadly do they look? And yeah. Joe, I need to know why David Lowry is a good fit for your film. I feel like following up the green Knight, which is a legendary authorian tale to follow that up with a remake of reign of fire is a different level of like famous tale. So Tristan, that's what I need you to kind of do for me. And Joe, when you get to it, I kind of need you to just make the fit feel right to me with David Lowry. Cause I'm maybe not seeing it as much as I love Lowry. I, I don't know if this project makes sense for him. So Tristan, uh, you go first. I'll start the timer. Whenever you start talking, you got two minutes. Yeah, I definitely wanted to inspire mine by like, Wendigos and those kinds of like cryptid kind of ancient creatures to give it the feel that like these creatures have been up there like you just forever. secretly loved antlers, <laughs> you know I lo I do love antlers I made a I made an antlers movie with Rudolph I guess but yeah this sounds a lot better than antlers this sounds like what I wanted antlers to be you know and uh, it sounds like a completely ridiculous kind of movie and yeah I love the I love the reindeer just kind of like falling apart at points where it's like you feel like they've been especially the last twenty years like they haven't been like in their normal situation they've been fed by kringle or anything like that so you kind of get like they've been really unkempt for a long time and they're kind of unhinged and i like the the idea almost of like maybe these ancient creatures like the wendigos are are based on like these these creatures that were actually up in the north the whole time so i think that would be a lot of fun and i think justin lynn has shown with he like single-handedly saved the fast and furious franchise like more than once <laughs> so i feel like he's someone that could now that he's out of that franchise could bring what he brought to that franchise that kind of One he minute. actually able to find the fun of that idea and i think he could he could he could find the tone here or he he'd be able to find the fun of this kind of movie how much time do i am i out of time you have 50 seconds 50 45 seconds. seconds well yeah i think i think justin lynn is definitely a good fit and i liked the christmas stuff like should we say set around christmas but i actually like that i was able to like bring the themes in of like him finding like belief again and he's like he's lost his belief at the beginning then by the end he like believes again and you have that kind of redemptive arc that you get in christmas movies and but it's in this kind of like twisted kind of way where he's not believing what he thought he was going to believe in but he's believing in like this totally different thing and joe has that in his where it's like oh you want to 
in the end have it be like, oh, it's cool that he believes again. It's cool that he has hope again. And I, I like that about Joe's, but I think mine actually does it in a cooler way because <laughs> he goes from like this hopeless killer at the beginning to like the defender of the whole realm of, of humanity at the end. All right. That's two minutes. Joe, two minutes whenever you start talking. Uh, as far as uh, David Lowry being a fit, uh, one of the things I wanted to focus on more was kind of the humanity aspect, obviously, you have the dragons and fighting the dragons, and you have the cool moments with the dragons and cool shots of the dragons, but I wanted my... I think the, those types of movies kind of are at their best when, whether it's Jurassic Park or any kind of movies that involve, or Jaws or anything, is like when you care about the people. If, it doesn't really matter how cool the dragons are or how cool any of this other stuff is if you don't care about the people and i feel like with movies like ghost story and other kind of human focused movies that he's done i feel like he can make you care about the people and you know care about the journey of michael shannon's character and kind of jude law and all of these other characters within the movie and then also with like the effects work and some of the stuff he's done in in the green knight because i think some of the things when the dragons are smaller I think it would be cool to have that done practically and then even the shots of like the bigger dragons uh, and mixing practical and uh, CG effects would be really good. And then as far as Tristan's pitch, you said David Lowry isn't a good fit. I think Justin Lin is a fun director. You know, he did good with Star Trek Beyond. He, you know, I'm a big Fast and Furious fan, but I almost felt like what Tristan sounded like is there are a lot of horror aspects to that movie with the reindeer coming down and killing people and similar to Reign of Fire, and I just haven't ever seen anything from Justin Lin like that, and I don't know if that's kind of in his wheelhouse or anything he could do. I feel like it's he's more of, like, the fun, dumb action, but I don't know if he can do any of, like, the horror elements that you would need for a movie like that, and I just feel like Tristan's, like you said, it's, like, the type of movie that would be a direct-to-sci-fi movie that, that would debut at 2 a.m., but I don't know if it's really a verifiable, quantifiable, actual released movie. Got anything else? You got five seconds. Oh, that's it. Well, oh, could have really said Tristan sucked, but no, Tristan it's sucks. Not a, it's it's <laughs> not on the record. Off the record. Uh, all right, count. Tristan, you get you get a minute to kind of say whatever you want to say about your film before the free for all. So just start whenever. I think Nick Cage would be a great addition to this. You know, we talk, we haven't talked about Nick Cage too much in this debate, but uh, Nick Cage is is a Chris Kringle attempt, like, and uh, not necessarily Santa, but essentially. Santa type, you know, he could bring in like the gruffled kind of outcast that he brought to Pig, or he's kind of been on the outskirts of society. He doesn't really talk to people. He's really forward and, and kind of like not what you would think of as is necessarily a Santa, but he had he kind of grows into being more of a warmer character as he hangs out with Dan Stevens more. And I think Dan Stevens and Nick Cage together would be a really fun dynamic. I think they'd have a great time in this kind of an action seconds. movie. And like Star Trek Beyond, I think uh, has definitely some elements of like body horror to it and some really great practical effects i think even if you don't like the movie there's definitely some really really good effects in that movie and i think the movie has some flaws but i think its effects are not one of them so if you can bring those effects into kind of the fun dumb action movie i think you could give us some really cool practical reindeer and some awesome crazy cars but reindeer battles you know that sounds kind of awesome to me and i'm all in on that all right perfect joe one minute uh uninterrupted before we get into our free-for-all 
Alright, uh, another thing I forgot to hit on with Tristan's movie is I feel like Dan Stevens is kind of a star on the rise. Where Nicholas, I could see Nicolas Cage doing a movie like this because he'd do anything, especially something in this realm. But Dan Stevens, who people are saying could potentially be the next Bond, I don't see as someone who would sign up for this movie or do uh, a movie like this. And then another, as far as like why david lowry would do this movie i mean number one it's a rain of fire movie anyone that i picked it'd be like why why is this a thing that they want to do but i just feel like it's more the story of uh michael shannon's character would be something that could attract a director of kind of this guy losing his faith and maybe gaining his faith in a different way and being able to do something with the dragons as far as i mean it's i changed it up as far as kind of what the story is, I didn't really focus on Christian Bale's character. I kind of switched the focus more to Van Zant and more of his story, and even basically changed what his story was. So it's not really the same Reign of Fire that came uh, out in 2002. Okay. All right. So I'm interested to see what happens here, but you guys get two minutes to just this one a full out war. Two minute war. Reign of Fire. Here it is right now. The preview. Whenever you say, anyone oh, starts. You'll say Dan Stevens is like, oh, too good for this or whatever. But like Dan, I don't think you too good for like Justin Lin is a really well-known acclaimed director. And I think him coming back and being like, look, I'm going to do this crazy Reign of Fire remake. I'm going to have Nick Cage in it. Like that's Dan Stevens would be like almost elevating that movie himself. Like I think Nick Cage, Dan Stevens, uh, Justin Lin all together is like a really big project. It's not like a B movie project. I think that is going to be something that's exciting. And and Dan Stevens has a versatile career. Like he has the guest. He just did the Lodge, a horror movie, like last year. I think you can definitely see him showing up in something like this. And it definitely feels like a good, a good Nick Cage kind of a role. So I don't see why that's an attack. Like I think Nick Cage fits pretty well. I think Dan Stevens fits well. I think Justin Lin would be a really great fit for this, especially because he's kind of having his own free reign. Like he's taking the premise of Reign of Fire and just saying, okay, I'm gonna do totally my own thing with it. Uh, sure, it's dragons, and it's like the same basic basic premise, but he's very much doing his own thing with it. So I think that would be a fun and exciting thing that people would be excited to see, and not some like bad sci-fi movie that would be straight to DVD. It would be like something that everyone would be talking about. It'd be like *Malignant*, but actually like a lot more of a mainstream hit. I think something that people would be really into, like the dragons battling. It would be like you got to see this crazy movie, kind of a movie, like an everything, everywhere, all at once kind of a movie. Yeah, I just still don't see... I like I like some of Justin Bloom's movies. I just don't see the guy who has brought us most of the Fast and Furious franchise people come to that movie because of kind of the themes and messages of Fast and Furious. I don't think anyone's really there for Justin Lin's directorial style. I don't see him really elevating this type of movie. I feel like ultimately this movie ends up in the bargain direct-to-DVD bin uh, as far as this being a theatrically released movie. I don't think that he necessarily has the talent to make this a kind of everything everywhere all at once type of movie i think it sounds like a great dvd movie to me i'd be happy to pick this up at walmart you know take my take my 295 and i feel like david lowry could actually turn this into an actual like movie that people are interested in that people talk about years later other than hey remember this let's get drunk as shit and watch this horrible movie it's a rain of play remake i want to get drunk as shit and watch it you know i'm not that's what I'm going for. Give me something that I get drunk with my friends and watch it at two in the morning and say, "Oh, can you believe when you know Nick Cage rode that reindeer? That was crazy." Uh, first of all, I will say Nicolas Cage is the perfect choice for like the live-action version of Santa, like Klaus version of Santa. Even though he was voiced by J.K. Simmons in that movie, I can totally picture Nick Cage in like that role. 
So I like him as the Santa Claus for sure. And I disagree with Joe about the Dan Stevens thing. I mean, he works a lot. I mean, he could be the next Bond, but that doesn't mean he can't be working on crazy action movies like like uh, like Tristan's. I mean, he just did a German film called I'm Your Man, which I, I recommend to anyone that came out last year. Um, and that was like a super small. That's not like a movie you do if you're like, oh, you're up and coming. You were just Beast and Beauty and the Beast. So then you do a, like this unknown German film. Um, so I think he could do whatever. And I, I like the fit there. I like the chemistry he could have with, with Cage. Joe, I like a lot of, I like some aspects of yours. I like the character development. I, I definitely think like you went for more of like, if you were actually going to go enjoy a Reign of Fire movie and like the characters and stuff, I, th I think yours works for that. Um, but at the end of the day, this is called Reign of Fire. It's about big dragons. Matthew McConaughey jumps with an axe to take out a dragon and gets immediately killed and that was the big moment in the trailers and then you watch the movie and it's revealed that's like just how he dies in the movie pretty sure it's been a long time since i've seen this thing but if i'm going to rain of fire i want to pick it out of the out of the fucking dollar bin at walmart and i want to watch it that way and if tristan's is that okay but i think tristan's actually sounds like a legitimately fun cool action movie that i would be super into um not just like the cheesy sci-fi type of film. Tristan went all in on the Christmas rule, more so than Joe. And just like the last one of, honestly, I, I really like both pitches. Um, they're obviously very different ones. Joe sold me more on why Lowry was a fit um, by the end there. But you guys used the same rule and it came down to who used it better. And I think Tristan went all in on the Christmas rule and Joe's was kind of just a background for the rest of his movie. So Tristan stays alive with Reindeer Games or Reindeer of Fire or whatever we're going to call his movie. I, I'm happy with it. That was very creative pitch, and I would be bummed to have you lose on putting, obviously, such work into it. And even going down the hole, you know, Rudolph, you wanted to play the Reindeer Games. You had me from <laughs> the moment he had the shiny red nose. It was going to be an uphill battle for Joe the whole way. But he did fight his way back, but I, I think in the end Tristan just used the the Christmas roll to to its strengths. So I give that to Tristan, which means our final film is Smoke and Aces. Joe, you lost, so you will decide who goes first. I'll go first. All right, and this is for all the marbles. It is one-to-one -one going into the last film. So I want everyone to give in their all. I want some blood drawn in these fights. Uh, Joe, you said you will go first, I believe. So Smoke and Aces, it came out in 2006. It was directed by Joe Carnahan. And it's about a Las Vegas magician and would-be crime boss, Buddy Aces Israel, agrees to testify against former partner and friend Primo Sparaza in return for admittance into the Witness Protection Program. However, before the deal can be hammered out, Sparaza orders a hit on Israel and a host of hitmen and women race to kill the snitch and kill the bounty while the FBI endeavors to keep their source information alive. It is basically just an all out gun guns, uh, guns blazing shootout. The whole film it starts Jeremy Piven, Ryan Reynolds and Ray Liotta, but also Ben Affleck is in there in a fun little role that if you haven't seen it, he, he kind of steals some of the scenes he's in. So I recommend smoke and aces for just a, Mid two thousands shoot 'em up type of movie. Smoke and Aces is what it's all about. So I'm interested to see if you guys embrace 
similar to the last one, like Tristan embraced the craziness and the zaniness of Reign of Fire, or if you go a more serious route. I'm interested to see what you guys do with Smoke and Aces, because I think you could make a strong pitch either way. And Joe, let's hear yours first. All right, so if uh, you've been keeping track of the rules, obviously I've been using the Batman villain actors, but I'll get to my cast after my pitch. And then that also leaves me with the rule of this one is centered around Christmas. And if you're going to center your movie around Christmas and a type of movie like this, there's one director that screamed out to me, and uh, that's uh, Shane Black. And I kind of changed up a little bit of the story of this movie as far as the tone and what we focus on. So after wannabe New York mob boss Aces Israel offers to testify against his former partner, mob boss Oscar Koch, uh, that's K-O-C-H, he is placed in the witness protection program. However, he is an insufferable asshole, and the FBI agents in charge of protecting him quickly keep asking for reassignment. There's a nice little montage of him doing different things to uh, the FBI agents protecting him, and and that is until his case falls in the lap of Agent Messner. Messner is kind of a uh, screw-up agent uh, who is at the end of their leash. They're told their career with the FBI could be over if they fail this assignment. When Agent Messner arrives, Aces is surprised to learn that the agent protecting him uh, from the people that want to kill him is a woman. He does everything from hit on her to make sexist jokes. And frustrated that she will be away from her family during the Christmas season, uh, she doesn't take any of his bullshit. Uh, and then at one point we see contract killers Georgia Sykes and Sharice Waters uh, spot Aces after he sneaks out of the house to score some coke. They call back to Oscar Coke, who puts the hit out on him and makes it an open contract out to any and all hitmen, telling them to bring him home. From there, an array of hitmen, contract killers, and any bad guy with a gun in the New York City area comes hunting down Aces with Agent Messner as his only line of defense. And we see in a lot of this movie is different uh, hitmen coming in, and they all have their own fighting styles. And so we see a lot of fights go down with various fighting styles uh, happen, so... That's one of the things I wanted to focus on. And uh, there's lots of uh, fun action comedy like you would expect from a Shane Black movie. Uh, one of the things is a running joke of people pronouncing Oscar Koch's last name as Cock and him correcting them before killing them. And because of it, it's Christmas, uh, one of the times, and I have the character of Laszlo Sloot, who in the original and in my version uh, can wear rubber latex masks and pose as different characters. And in my movie, one of the times he poses as a mall, sad, mall Santa. Ultimately, uh, through running from the hitmen, Aces and Messner wind up in Coke's office. There, it's slowly revealed that this was all a setup. Uh, through their bonding, Messner lets it slip. She was an undercover agent. And earlier in Messner's career, she uh, posed in the lower level of Coke's operation and worked alongside Coke's son and she is the reason that Coke's son is serving 25 to life. Uh, Messner is confused and asks why, what Coke would have done if any of the hitmen actually killed uh, Aces, and Coke laughs and says that wasn't the plan. They all knew to guide you back here so Coke could watch her die. Aces interjects and says, well, except the Tremor brothers. They are just crazed neo-Nazis looking for a reason to kill anybody. And Coke orders Aces to kill Messner, and because of the fact that they've been able to somewhat bond throughout this movie, he refuses... And Coke tries to shoot Aces for betraying him, and Messner kills Coke. Uh, the two escape the facility and are met by uh, and are met by the Tremor brothers, and they surprise ambush them and kill Aces to collect the bounty. And Messner just stands there in shock as the credits roll over her. Um, for my movie, uh, Aces Israel is going to be played by Robert Downey Jr. 
Agent Messner is going to be played by Uma Thurman, who played Poison Ivy in Batman and Robin. Oscar Koch is going to be played by Christopher Walken, who uh, was a villain in Batman Returns. Laszlo Sloop, uh, in honor of him wearing a rubber latex mask in The Batman, is going to be played by Colin Farrell. The Tremor Brothers are going to be played by Angus Cloud, who is most known for playing the character of Fezco in Euphoria. And then I also have Jack Quaid and Zac Efron. And then Georgia Sykes and Sharice Walters, uh, the two kind of contract killers that work together, are going to be played by Zoe Kravitz and Michelle Pfeiffer, who both played Catwoman. It's just kind of uh, extra as far as Batman villains go. And that is my pitch. Okay. All right. Interesting. I like the using the set around Christmas rule for Shane Black. Also, what I meant on the last one, I think I had said that your Christmas role was a background in your reign of fire, but I, I meant that Tristan used his Christmas role better than you used the losing faith. Yeah. I know. Rule. That. Yeah. 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 Um, Tristan, I'm interested to see what you do here. I like Joe's pitch. I like a Shane black film and I like his cast. So what do you got for me? All right. So for my remake of smoke and aces, I also use the Batman villains and, uh, as usual, it's set around Christmas and, this time it's at Christmas in Las Vegas. I think that's a really cool visual. You know, you get, like, the Christmas decorations in the desert location, and you get, like, that kind of, that kind of like, juxtaposition there. And I think directors that could handle that kind of setting and really get the most out of that is the Safety brothers. And I think they do a great job with tension and drama in these conversations. I would love to see them take on action. I think they would, it would be really, really fun to see how they could bring that tension to an action-oriented movie. Uh, and... I would love to see them bring that to this one. Uh, so a once a once big time Las Vegas uh, criminal. He's now kind of like a washed up minister at a shitty drive-in drive through chapel in Vegas. Uh, his name is Buddy. He's played by Zach Galifianakis, who we know from earlier in the episode was uh, the voice of, of the Joker. And he has this kind of similar arc to uh, to their, their star of Uncut Gems, Adam Sandler where he, he was kind of this dorky comedy guy that has slightly turned his career around a little bit. He's done a couple of dramas here and there. He's really changed his appearance, and I think it would be fun to see him take on the Safety Brothers role here, and maybe that could be like similar to, to uh, it was for Uncut Gems. I kind of set him up on this kind of revitalized career path for half a second. Uh, and he's approached by this kind of button-up, rule-following FBI agent played by Aaron Eckhart, who, of course, played Two-Face in Dark Knight. Uh, and he wants him to flip on his old partner, who now runs a casino, uh, played by Jack Nicholson, called uh, Sparaza, in exchange for a new life. Uh, so Zach uh, refuses and says, no, you know, I'm actually good with my life here. My life is uh, fine doing nothing, in fact. And uh, Nicholson's kind of right-hand man, though, Max, played by Cillian Murphy, uh, he sees the men together and assumes the worst and tells Sparaza about it. And Sparaza orders a hit, saying, oh, I guess... Old, old buddies flipping on us. So we get the kind of screaming of attackers as uh, in this all revolving around a misunderstanding where like he's literally not even flipping. I think that's something that is funny with it. With, it would be the Safis would find fun in is like uh, the fact that it's all rooted under a misunderstanding that he's not even actually flipping and he's trying to say that he's trying to communicate that to people but he can't because they're just not believing him or not listening to him and you get that tense kind of anger where they're like god just listen to them <laughs> just listen to the man for half a second but uh, it kind of forces Eckhart and uh Galifianakis to bond together and become kind of like uh 
these this duo that's kind of trying to get him out in time and saying, look, I'm, I'm going to protect you. I'm going to get you out of Vegas. And over the course of the story, you kind of start to see that maybe uh, Galifianakis is changing his heart a bit. Maybe he's bonding with Eckhart. He's seeing what the life has done to him, when it, what he could have had and if he didn't go down this path. And he's saying, man, you know what? You're right. I actually am going to change. I actually am going to believe that I can change my life and that I can accomplish what I want to accomplish. And then, of course, in the typical Safdie Brothers kind of anti-ending, right when you think the character is going to get whatever he wants and change his life and, and be okay, Eckhart, Aaron Eckhart ends up getting killed and it gets Zach Galifianakis kind of set back again and he runs off and we just kind of end up with him not dead to be a direct ripoff of, of the other movie, but he's kind of essentially reset right, right back to where he started. Not in Vegas, but he's in like a run downtown in the middle of the Midwest, hiding out, working a dead-end job doing nothing you know and it's like has anything ever been accomplished by this character really and i think that's what Santa brothers love to leave you at the end of you had this huge tense experience rooted for this guy rooted for this guy and then at the end you're like well okay not, not much is really accomplished actually and i think they would be able to have a lot of fun with that and like i said the tension for dialogue and for interaction would be a lot of fun to bring to an action movie and i'd love to see how tense that could be so that's my pitch for uh smoke and aces uh, directed by the Safties and starring Zach Galifianakis and Aaron Eckhart. Okay. All right. Interesting. I like both pitches here. We kind of got someone going with the director sticking to his strengths and someone going like a kind of a new direction with other directors. So I'm interested to see how this, this plays out um, battling-wise. Joe, you pitched first, so I'll give you two minutes. But first... Um, I kind of just want from both of you when you start, I don't have a ton of questions. It's pretty black and white, pretty straightforward on yours, but I need to know from Joe, just will this kind of be, we've seen Robert Downey Jr. twice already with Shane Black. And I kind of need to know if, uh, if it's just kind of more of the same old Robert Downey Jr. Or if he's going to be doing something kind of trying something new and different here. Um, and for Tristan, I would like to know, I like the choice of Galifianakis and Cillian Murphy, but I feel like Aaron Eckhart is kind of hit or miss for me. And I don't know if he's a good fit in a Softy Brothers film, just because I haven't really seen him do, uh, his most enjoyable role for me was in like, thank you for smoking. And I think he's good at like that super charming, charismatic character. And I don't see the Softy Brothers based on their filmography really having that type of role. So I want to know kind of what Aaron Eckhart's role kind of is in your film and what kind of character he plays. And Joe, I want to just know just kind of what, what the Robert Downey Jr. performance is going to look like. Um, everything else I, I think uh, answers itself. So Joe, I'll start the two minute timer whenever you start. Um, all right. So kind of like, as far as the Robert Downey Jr. Performance, kind of how I envision this character is it is a little, something a little bit different than a hundred percent. What we've seen from him before is, you kind of get the vibe that he's kind of like this worm type character, this lowly, like obviously you find out that he's been in the mob, has mob connections, but he is ratting, you feel like he's ratting on his mob boss and you feel like it is ultimately, like you think maybe he's doing a good thing, but he's doing it for his protection and throughout the movie uh, through his bond with Uma Thurman's character and he's like saying things to Uma Thurman's character at first and you 
definitely don't like him, but throughout the movie, he's a little bit more charming, and you kind of understand maybe where he's coming from throughout. But then, obviously, when you have the villain turn that this was all a setup and this was all just to get Uma Thurman in front of Oscar Koch that you realize, oh no, this guy is kind of the worm and he kind of reverts back to this worm character until he ultimately refuses to kill Uma Thurman and you realize maybe there is uh, a little bit of goodness in there, but that is more of kind of the character that I would say Robert Downey, he's like this worm type character that I don't really feel like I've seen him fully play before, especially not in a uh, Shane Black type movie and I feel like ultimately what my movie is is the relationship between Robert Downey Jr. and Uma Thurman's character with these uh, various you know assassins and whatnot coming in defending and fighting them and Uma Thurman in these various fight scenes 30 seconds oh that she's like done that we've seen her do in movies like Kill Bill and I feel like it could be kind of interesting we haven't seen Kind of, we've seen him do a lot of buddy cop type movies, but we haven't seen any of those buddy cops be a woman in a Shane Black movie. So I feel like that would also be something different and maybe challenging for him because he hasn't done it before. And it would give his movie a different flavor than what he's had before. All right. All right. I think I got a good idea of that then. Um, Tristan, you got two minutes whenever you start. You're muted. I start out with my Aaron Eckhart character, get a bit of a picture of him in that he starts off as this very kind of charming, charismatic, you know, he's a Vegas kind of FBI agent. He just kind of like smokes and drinks and is very calm and chill. But you see over the course of this movie, he just starts to break. And I think he, it'd be fun to see Aaron Eckhart play that character. We're used to seeing him be that smooth, charismatic guy. And you see him over the course of the movie, over the pressure that the safeties uh, put the character under, just breaking and breaking and starting to hear his voice crack. And like by the end of the movie, he's just like completely kind of unhinged and you see kind of like the change in that character that I think would be a lot of fun to see her Eckhart pull off. And plus the safeties are good at taking an actor and kind of pushing him to do something slightly out of the comfort zone. So I think they could get that out of Aaron Eckhart. And uh, for me, Joe's just sounds very samey for Shane Black. It just sounds like he's kind of doing the nice guys again with like a slightly different setup and things like that. But it sounds totally similar, a lot, essentially like it's the nice guys. And I wanted safeties to do something unique and fun that kind of pushes them to new heights to try new things instead of just repeating things and i think it's like they take the beats that i know they can do well like a really tense character drama really uh kind of a com- anticlimactic ending that kind of like feels like that sigh of relief but it kind of also a disappointment in a way so i think that you take what they do well and you put them in a totally new situation that would be really fun to see and joe if it feels like a movie we're halfway through i'd turn it off and just watch the nice guys instead you know mine sounds much more interesting forward step for the career of the safeties and Instead of just like a, at least at, at the most a parallel step, seconds. if not a step down for Shane Black. And also, Joe, you suck, and my pitch is better than yours. Still got 20 seconds. Look, I got 20 seconds. Look, okay, well, Safety's action sounds insane. Like the tension they could bring to interactions, imagine how tense that is. Cutting between action scenes, and like you would never get a breath out. Like even when there's not action happening on the screen, there'd be people talking in their usual Safety Brothers intensity. So, like, you'd have the constant tension of the Safety Brothers all the time, all and right. I would love to see that. All right. Actually, two minutes. You used the last 20 seconds wisely. You made a couple good points in that. Um, Joe, you get a minute of uninterrupted defense or attack before we get into our two minutes. 
Um, Tristan said, my movie sounds like The Nice Guys, which obviously Shane Black uh, wrote and directed. And The Nice Guys was one of my favorite movies of that year, so I don't know how the more of The Nice Guys is a bad thing. But as far as differentiate, uh, one of the things I did to differentiate is I wanted more uh, fight scenes in my movie. Obviously, you have all of these hitmen coming in. You have a guy who wrote The Predator, one of the best action movies of all time. You can have the guys from Crazy 88 or whatever, any of these fight places come in to do the choreography it doesn't necessarily have to be the one in charge of choreography but imagine the nice what if the nice guys had great fight scenes in there i feel like that would just elevate that movie and make it even better you know and even kind of just the small little action movies in the nice guys was great um i feel like my problem with tristan's pitch maybe it's the casting of zach galifianakis but i feel like his movie is as the, the more he keeps pitching it it feels like it's trying to be like this fun zany comedy but it just keeps being reeled into being more of this tr- tense drama by the safety brothers and i feel like maybe it's just the zach galifianakis casting but i feel like there's somewhere in the disconnect between the pitch he's trying to pitch and what he's actually pitching because every time i keep picturing his movie i just keep picturing zach galifianakis in this zany comedy not so much a tense safety brothers movie and so all right Joe went a little over, so if Tristan, you're finishing a point, I'll let you too, but you got one minute once you start talking. I'll just say Safety Brothers, uh, I think you you say, oh, it sounds like there's some zany comedy in there, and like, sure, the Safety Brothers have like elements of comedy. I think Uncut Gems has like moments where you, so it's like you laugh almost out of intensity, like, and I think they could mix that pretty well of bringing in the zany comedy roots of Zach Galifianakis, like they had from Adam Sandler, and finding like the drama in that comedy. <laughs> I think this mind just sounds like a really thrilling watch and something that would be challenging to the safeties, but a challenge thing that they could take on. And I think when you give a director something that's not challenging, it, it results in a boring movie, you know, and when you give them something, you've done this before, just do it again, but slightly different, you know, and that's when you get boring movies. That's when you get a career that is you know, kind of forgettable and kind of mid. And I think the Safety brothers are going to avoid that by constantly upping themselves saying, okay, we did this. Now let's do this one bigger. Now let's do this one bigger. And mine feels like a great step forward for the careers and that, like a step back and, and, and it, like probably sure it might be a good movie but it's not going to be like a, a career move a career change movie for for jane black all right there's your your minute all right you guys have a two minute battle royale before i determine the victor here so i expect you guys to really duke it out and i'll start whenever you guys do so at the timer whenever you guys do i mean you're you're saying my movie is a repeat of a Shane Black movie, but your movie is still a actor that's known for his comedic work, dabbling in dramatic work, uh, being chased down by people and on the run and trying to make all these various moves to stay alive. It's like, okay, you're, if you're saying uh, repeating your thing is make a movie boring, then your movie is essentially just uncut gems with Zach Galifianakis instead of Adam Sandler. And the only time I've really seen Zach Galifianakis do dramatic work is in uh Birdman, but he was just kind of a guest role there wasn't much asked from him i don't know if i can see him leading a safety brothers movie where adam sandler has had really great dramatic work in his history to show okay i can believe him potentially having leading a movie like uncut gems i don't know if zach galifianakis is the guy to lead a safety brothers movie or... he's done a handful of drama movies he was in it's kind of a funny story it was a mental health dramedy he was in and he uh the show buckets and effects that had dramedy elements i think he's definitely shown some history for uh dramatic work and especially comedic dramatic work and i think that would be something this would work really well with and you have 
like you're saying, it's it's just a repeating of Uncut Gems, but it's like a completely different setting. It's a completely different setup. It's a more action oriented. There's these two characters. It's kind of more of a buddy comedy than like a guy on the run movie, you know. And I think like yours, it has so, so many elements of the nice guys. It's not just like the basic setup. Like sure, mine has some elements of Uncut Gems, but yours is like oh, it's in it's in Vegas. It's based on these kind of sleazy characters. It feels very much like kind of the same thing. And mine, sure, it's like a guy being chased by guys, but like that's kind of the premise of, of the movie, you know? And I think that's like a really very bones way of looking at it. I, I, I think mine just sounds like a much more interesting move for the Safety Brothers, something that I would love to see them do. And Shane Black, I just don't want to see him repeating stuff. I mean, Shane Black has shown he's at his best when he's doing a buddy comedy type movie and I feel like it's best to put him back in that realm and that's exactly what I did and I threw some curveballs I changed things up and I feel like I did things that would improve it or make it different and it's not I don't feel that this movie is just the nice guys again I feel like there's sure there's elements but there's also elements of kiss kiss bang bang which to me are without a doubt his two best movies and when and I'd rather have go that route and just be like oh i have shane black but i'm doing something completely different than what he's done before and who knows whether he can knock it out of the park i know he can knock my movie out of the park all right all right that was a good battle you guys both put up good pitches um and you both used your rules well i'm i'm stuck not really stuck but i i my point's gonna be made on on one thing i'm still kind of going back and forth on is I know exactly what Joe's movie looks like. I know that I would enjoy it. It reminds me of, obviously, it reminds me of The Nice Guys, but it does remind me of Kiss Kiss Bang Bang. I know what a Shane Black movie looks like, and I know I'd have fun with it, especially if you throw in some of that, those zany characters with the action and the premise I like. Tristan, I love the Softy Brothers, but you went in a direction where I don't know what your movie's going to look like. I don't know if Zach Galifianakis will work. I think he will, but I don't know for sure. I don't know if the action will work in a Softy Brothers film because they haven't shown it to me. Um, so it comes down to, do I go with the pitch that I would be interested to see, but I don't know if it'll work, or the pitch that is more of the same, but I definitely know I'd like it. Um, and I think to me, if you were giving me that choice with these directors, I would be more excited to see Tristan's movie because it's something that I haven't seen before. And I think Zach Galifianakis is a great choice to work with the Softy brothers. I don't like the more of the same. I was a little disappointed, even though I love Adam Sandler on cup gems, I was a little disappointed to see that Adam Sandler is going to be the star of their next film. I'm sure he'll be great in it, but I want to see them continue to work with actors who maybe you don't see this performance coming. Then they show it to you. Zach Galifianakis, I think is a perfect choice for that. Cause like Tristan mentioned with baskets, um, He's shown that he can do some dramatic stuff before with some of that comedy in there. And even like Adam Sandler had some funny lines in Uncut Gems, even though it was overall a more serious role. I think Galifianakis would do well there. I like the the rest of the cast in his as well. And yeah, I think at the end of the day, I know I'd like Joe's movie, but it doesn't excite me as much as Tristan's, the idea of Tristan's does. So I'm going to go with Tristan. But all three of these fights were super close and could have gone one way or the other. But I think the fights really determined them. Tristan really sold me in that last 20 seconds of his first two minutes on the Softy Brothers action. And that is what really intrigued me because they narrow, they drill the tension down so much in their movie. I'd be interested to see combining that tension 
with this perfect plot for them and then to see what they could do with action you you uh you had a strong last like 20 seconds your your two minutes and that really stuck with me and i think that might have been the the overall tiebreaker like joe's joe's getting uh darker and darker over there it's getting harder and harder to see him as he's losing sunlight um so we'll kind of, we'll kind of wrap this up but i'm gonna give tristan the victory here but it was very narrow you guys were every pitch could have gone either way um but they ended up going in tristan's direction and i credit his giant monster reindeer uh, for this for this victory yeah i was just glad that wasn't pitch one you know i was like save that one for like <laughs> round two <laughs> right yeah you can start first. off with that one but uh tristan what do you got to say after your after your victory look i'm just happy i came back and i won you know i got nervous because yeah they're definitely close pitches and it was hard to argue against some of joe's when they they sounded very good you know and uh but i'm happy like i said at the beginning i tried to swing for the fences on at least one of them and i think i i I'm glad I hit that one. You know, I would have been a little dud if I put that crazy pitch out there and you guys were like, well, that sounds dumb. You know, so I'm pretty happy that at least I won on the reindeer pitch. That was the only one I really wanted to win on. So the fact that I won on uh, the Smoke and Aces pitch is pretty exciting too. So especially when I switched out the director as Joe was giving his pitch. So uh, <laughs> I'm pretty happy about you that the too. Right choice. <laughs> Who was your original director? Uh, it was the Daniels who just did everything everywhere all at once, and I remember neither of you have seen it, so it would have been a pointless mm -hmm. argument to make. So I just switched it off to the Safties, who I think fit, because I was going between the two of them anyway, so I thought the Safties probably fit a little bit better. Yeah, I think that's what won you that point, so that was a good change. Just like Joe with his first uh, movie that he won on, changing some stuff up and kind of adding to it as he went on, he kind of won with that. So both of you guys kind of just won on the fly and kind of just, you know, uh, ad lib some things and, and won that way, which is good. Joe, you were defeated, but you did get one win here, which is important because that'll go towards uh, championship matches and things like that. Because as of right now, I think it's I have one win and two pitches that won. Tristan now has one win and he has three pitches that have won. And you've obviously only done one fight and you have one pitch that have won, but you have a loss. Um, what do you, what do you got to say after your your I know it's two to one, which is everything's going to be like narrow defeats now, I feel like. But what do you got to say after like narrowly losing on, on a couple pitches there? Uh, there was no good pitch. Or, sorry, no bad pitches uh, tonight. <laughs> uh, the one thing I think like obviously with like Kristen's reindeer pitch, it kind of comes down to like what you look for in a pitch. I could see 100 judges uh, judging that 50 of them will be like, well, that movie sounds insane there's no way I'm voting for that. And the other 50 go, that movie sounds insane. Sign me up. So a lot <laughs> well, of I think it, Tristan, Tristan got the right judge for that, for yeah. that pitch for sure. Yeah. And I feel like a lot of this show, you have to know your judges. You have to know who you're writing pitches for. I feel like we've been doing this for nearly two years now. And I constantly uh, am developing my strategy, changing my strategy. I think ultimately the best strategy is kind of have your director and your cast locked in have a bare bones pitch and then as questions come in or as you see stuff in other people's pitches uh just adapt your pitch throughout that's definitely what i did for pacific heights i knew obviously what rule i was going with and who my cast was going to be and uh but yeah for never seeing any of these movies and writing my pitches purely based off the trailers and reading the plot on wikipedia uh i feel like i didn't do too bad it's kind of hard though to uh, change things up when you really don't know what is this movie truly about when you don't see it to allow you to adapt within it kind of does force you to more have a movie based around the original plot because you are just kind of going off 
uh, what you're reading without being able to fully experience the movie that allows you to change things up. So, and I feel like that was true because I'm sure Tristan, Tristan's definitely seen Rain of Fire, so he knew more of what that movie's like, okay, I'm going to take that basic movie and I'm going to make it Reindeer. And uh, that terrorized this town where <laughs> me not having seen it, I'm like, how much of this movie am I truly losing? But, you know, it is what it is. I take my loss in stride. I think next time we battle, uh, I'm going to be judging because we had a competition with the Oscars where we all picked which one we thought was going to win Best Picture. I clearly picked Coda, so I get to pick three movies and four rules that all have nothing to do with each other. So it'll be fun to see uh, what they do with it. Yeah, I'm very excited for that for that fight. I always love battling Tristan. I feel like it always comes down to the wire with us, and we always go back and forth. Um, yeah, it's There's funny. Be a lot more it, yelling that we. Oh yeah, oh yeah. This was way more mellow than it needed to be. Tristan and I will bring <laughs> back the fighting. Um, but it's funny because thinking back on it and looking at these pitches, like if I wasn't sitting in the judge chair and you guys did the same exact pitches and Bobby was here, I think Joe would have won two to one, and every decision would have been flipped. I think Tristan would have won his Pacific Heights because I'm pretty sure Bobby's seen Marriage Story and he's probably he probably would have been more into like the character development stuff like that. I'm a huge Coen Brothers guy, so I went with Joe there. I think Bobby would have liked. I think Bobby would have liked Joe's pitch, but he would have been super out on Tristan's reindeer pitch. And I think for the last one, Bobby's a much bigger Shane Black fan than I am. As much as I like Shane Black, I think Tr- Joe would have won that if Bobby was sitting here. So it does come down to not only, you know, what, how good your pitches are, but not exactly pandering to your judge, but kind of knowing who's, who's deciding and going towards those strengths. The softies are maybe already one of my, like maybe my favorite working directors right now. So Tristan made the smart pivot right before he went by, by changing that up. Um, but yeah, I think, I think if Bobby was sitting in my chair, I think Joe might've won, either three nothing or two to one on that one um because i don't think he would have been in as as into the reindeer one as i was for sure um and he would have been totally down for a shane black movie i know bobby's used shane black a lot in his pitches before um so yeah it comes down to just kind of having strong pitches and hoping the judge decides your movie uh hopefully one day we can get four of us back on here again for a fight instead of just one judge because it does help having that second judge to kind of help make those decisions. So when we can make it work, we'll get all four of us for sure. We'll, we'll talk to Bobby next time we do our, our movie. Maybe when Tristan and I fight, we'll get, we'll get Bobby and Joe as co-judges. But at the time being, thank you for checking mm-hmm. out our, our show. You guys got anything else you want to say yeah. before we head out? Any plugs? Yeah, I was just going to tease our uh, next battle episode of our give our three movies and our four rules to give people kind of an idea of what to look forward to. So uh, the three movies I chose for them to do is Quick Change, which is a movie I recommended, I think, on one of our like recommend episodes, a Bill Mur- great Bill Murray movie from 1990. Double Dragon, a nice video game movie from 1994. And then uh, I had a movie, I think I had Hitch, or not Hitch, uh, Hancock in there originally, and Johnny's like, I've pitched that movie before, I don't want to pitch it again. So I'm like, fuck it, I'm going to pick a movie I know they definitely haven't picked, pitched before, and that is the recent Morbius from 2022 is the other movie they have to pitch a reboot for. And then, as far as their four rules, one must be directed by its star, one must be a horror comedy, one must include characters made famous by both Samuel L. Jackson and Jack Nicholson, and four, one must have a soundtrack completely performed by one artist who is a past or present judge on The Voice. 
And so, uh, yeah, it'll be uh, very interesting and curious to see what they do with those movies and rules. Yeah, I'm intrigued to see the the rule that gives me the most intrigue out of that list is the the soundtrack of the boys because normally on here like today not once was soundtrack ever mentioned not once you know we can't come up here and start singing songs and like pretending that we wrote music for our movies so i'm interested to see how that plays out and how important that that rule is to your film because if you just say offhand like oh yeah whatever usher whoever the fuck made my music and then you never mention it again it's (laughs) like all right what was the point of that rule or you could go all in on it and really, really sell on it. So I'm interested to see see yeah. how that plays. And Tristan is a big musical fan, so we're we're gonna see what uh where that you know goes. I already I have a list of ideas. That's, I feel I like I would that's... be surprised if that's Tristan's rule and for every movie and it's different <laughs> artists every time. We'll see what happens. But yeah. I'm excited for the fight. I feel like that's definitely never gonna be a rule that wins you your pitch, but I could see it being a rule that loses you your pitch if you mm-hmm. say oh my movie's like this hardcore dramatic movie and then you're like Shakira's doing all of my music you're just kind of be left like i don't think that fits i think that's a bad use of your rule but mm-hmm. yeah i think that one is one that can definitely only lose you a pitch so it's interesting to see you know how we incorporate that i, I can't wait to see mine, what we I do for thought I'm excited to have a quick change because that's the premise that could go any direction, you know, and you can make mm-hmm. that very serious, very whimsical and crazy. You can do whatever you want with Bill Murray dressing up as a clown, <laughs> robbing banks, you know, banks, you can yeah. do anything with that. You could just make the dark night. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Anyone have any? Uh, Joe, other... Joe has lost and is now completely surrounded in darkness. So it's very <laughs> fitting. He's been losing light since the beginning. He won at his most brightest and he, has slowly dimmed towards doom. I've literally um, sucked the light out of Joe's life yeah. right now. Look at that. <laughs> yeah. But, yeah, so this was a, a great episode. I think uh, you guys are still doing your Disney Plus every week, so check uh, those out on our Once on in our a while. <laughs> once in a while. Yeah, once in a while. It's it's tough now to do podcasts, so we're sorry we haven't brought you guys, uh, you know, uh, weekly episodes or anything like that but with our schedules and life going on it's tough to do that so dr strange is coming out uh dr strange is coming out in a couple of days i promise i'll have a review on the youtube channel whether it's got two of us or one of us or it's on the disney plus show or something there'll be thoughts on dr strange somewhere somewhere on the channel so watch that follow us on spotify whatever playlists whatever podcast platform you love to find some whether it's the next fight, whether it's some reviews, we got all kinds of stuff on there. So we'd love to have you guys. And we promise there'll be stuff on there. <laughs> it's been a wild month. You know, April's, April was a weird one. Yeah, definitely. So, yeah, on that note, yeah, my puppy was uh, very excited to see me. So I got to go take him outside. Um, thank you for checking out Movie Change Up to anyone who did. And we will see you next time uh, we do an episode for our next fight, probably. All right. Uh-huh. See you. Thank you for watching the Movie Change Up podcast. We'd really appreciate if you liked, commented, subscribed, and shared us with anyone you think might be into what we're doing over here. Thank you. Have a nice day.